The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. So like I said, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to do a little bit of background. I think it's really important. We're really on part three of considering how important the resurrection is. The first part was in verses 1 to 11, and we saw that there that the resurrection is the power of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. And I want to ask you real quick, just a little, little drill. How would you define the gospel in like one sentence? I wish I could give you five minutes to do that, but I can't. How, how would you define the gospel in one sentence? So just go ahead and try. What thoughts come to your mind? I asked somebody the other night, and they started talking about living a life of thankfulness to God. And I had to say, hey, I, listen, I'm all for living a life of thankfulness to God. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not what you do. If you included what you did in your thought about the gospel, I'm not against what you thought, most likely, but the order's wrong. The gospel is news about what someone else has totally done. Now, we could talk about the response to the gospel. That's important. But first, the gospel and its purity, what it is. It's who Jesus is and what he's done. That's the gospel. The person and work of Jesus. And we saw from verses 1 to 11, he's the Christ, Paul says, according to the scriptures. And man, it could take a long time to unpack all that. But basically, he's the divine king. He's the son of God. And he's the promised king. God, this has been God's plan. He's been making promises. And it's all fulfilled. It's all answered right here in Jesus. He is the story, the solution, the power to, to save us that God is writing, that God is accomplishing. He's the promised king. He's the son of God. He's the divine king. How do we know that's who he is? You know how many people have claimed to be the Messiah? In Jesus' day, there's a bunch of them that claimed to be the Messiah. They all died. They were, many of them were killed by Romans. Wasn't Jesus killed by Romans? Why is Jesus the Christ and not some other dude we've forgotten his name? Anybody? He rose from the dead. <laughs> he rose from the dead. That's why he's the Christ. That's why we know. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, he's just another, just another freak, another religious leader who came and went and failed. He rose from the dead. The gospel is not just the person of Christ. It's the work of Christ. It's what Jesus has done. And we saw in those verses, Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. And when we're honest, I think we all know there's a moral law that's above all of us. You ever listen to your own arguments when you're arguing with somebody about how they communicated with you or didn't? You're offended, they're offended. You ever listen to that argument? In that argument, have you never noticed, is a moral law. You should have done this. And the other person is usually has an excuse. They don't say, no, it's not important that I treat you well. They just give an excuse for why they didn't treat you well. But they all agree in that argument, yeah, there's a way we should act. And they're accusing or defending themselves based on that standard. Isn't that interesting? Everybody believes in a moral law. And when we're honest, we all know we've broken the moral law. I've broken my own moral law, much less God's moral law. I deserve justice for that, that sin Jesus died for our sins in our place. So God brought the justice that was deserved. 
on the head of another, on the head of the substitute, the one who lived a perfect life, stands in our place and takes our sin upon himself. Now, how, how many of you just love the idea that Jesus died for your sins? I said, that's good news right there. That's real good news. When you stand before the judge of the universe and it's all exposed, what you've said. Oh, I heard some awful things this week. It made me think about awful things I've said. Do you remember some of the worst things you've ever said? That would be enough, wouldn't it? That would be enough for God to say, <laughs> be gone. Jesus died for my sins, every sin, all the sins. He died for our sins. Do you love that? We're forgiven. We're washed clean. We're right with God. We can come to him as our father. He died for our sins. How do you know Jesus died for your sins? A lot of people who died on Roman crosses. A lot of nice people. How do you know he died for your sins? He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. That's God's vindication saying his life was right, his work. Remember what Jesus says? It is finished. It worked, God says. Yes, he paid for the sins of my people. He rose from the dead. It's the receipt that you get saying, yes, sins are paid for. He's alive. Do you see what I'm getting at? Without the resurrection, Jesus isn't who he says he is. And Jesus didn't do what he claimed to do. The resurrection is the power of our faith. With the resurrection, what do you have? This is the son of God. This is, he, he is the Christ. He died for our sins. That's incredible. The resurrection has Jesus standing far and above any other religion, any other religious leader. I mean, who, who else can compare with the one who predicts his life, death, and resurrection and then does it? Who else can compare? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let's quit. We have a weird hobby here, this church thing we're doing. Weird hobby. If he rose from the dead, man, everybody should be here or being a one like it. There's nothing bigger. The resurrection is the power of the gospel. It's just background, folks, but I had to say it again. Not only that, the resurrection is the power of the Christian life. We saw that in verses 12 to 34. Man, you, you're a Christian for 30 seconds, and you know that Jesus calls you to sacrifice something, right? Isn't, hasn't Jesus messed with you? Hasn't he asked you for things you didn't want to give? Now, we know you, you, Christian, you stay longer, stay Christian for longer. You know it's good, and you're glad for it. But, but there are sacrifices that come from following Christ. He's king, not us, right? There are things um, we have to give away we don't want to give away. Or there are things we have to do we didn't want to do to be a Christian. Why should you do that? Paul talks about, man, I, I die daily for these churches. You remember the story of the Apostle Paul? He's beaten with, 30, with rods, you know, whipped. He's stoned. He's left for dead. He's shipwrecked. Why would you keep doing that? That is not the American dream. Where's this comfy house with this white picket fence and his 401k? Where is it? He, he gave up his title and his comfort and his status to a radical extent. Why did he do that? He says, if we don't rise, my life is a fool's game. I'm an idiot. 
I had one life to enjoy something, and I am wasting it in blood and tears. But he says, I know something. I'm going to rise from the dead. That's why I do what I do. This life is for that life. I'm willing to sacrifice here because I know what I'm, what I'm going to get there. If there's no resurrection, he says, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Just follow what makes you feel good right now. Whatever that is for you, go after it. You got 70 plus years. Try to get some thrills. That's it. That's all there is. Live for yourself, which is the very motto of our secular day. Live for yourself. But Christians, we know better. What's going to happen? We're going to rise, which should give us new courage for how we're going to live now, right? The resurrection is the power of the Christian life. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the Christian life. You're going to rise from the dead. That's where we've been so far. And today, Paul wants to help the person or deal with the person who says, I just can't believe I'm going to rise. I just can't believe it. Let me read you this quote. I'll start first, and then you'll find the author after I'm done with it. The author says, There is nothing that is more at variance with human reason than this article of faith. For who but God alone could persuade us that bodies, which are now liable to corruption, will, after having rotted away, or after they've been consumed by fire, or torn in pieces by wild beasts, will not merely be restored entire, but in a greatly better condition. Do not all our apprehensions of things straightaway reject this as a thing fabulous, nay, most absurd. Who said it? John Calvin, the great Reformed theologian. This is hard to believe, he says, that this sack of skin is going to rise to something new and better. Hard to believe. Hold on, says the apostle. I'm going to give you three reasons. At least I'm putting them in three reasons. I'm going to give you three reasons to help your belief in this grow. To help you see, oh, it actually, it fits. It works. I'm going to give you three reasons. Because, and I think the point is, I want you to see how all of life fits under God's rule. This life and the next life. So that you will have, and this is the point of the whole chapter, that you will have great confidence and courage in whatever time of life you're in to live fully for Christ. To go with courage, because there's seasons of life, right? Sometimes you're young, you're not sure how this is going to work. Am I really going to get a job? Is it really going to work for me? And we want to say God's with you, past, present, future. Sometimes you're in the middle of your life and you're saying, I don't, did I do this right? Am I doing this right? Uh, am I getting the most out of it? Oh, I feel like I've messed some things up. Or I've been disappointed. I didn't get everything I hoped for. Is there any am amens out there? Am I the only, only one? Okay. God's with you. He's for you. Past, present, future. And then we well know sometimes we come to those end of life things. The doctor tells you something you did not want to hear. And you kind of knew it was coming, but you didn't really think it was going to come for you, at least not yet. But there it is. How are you going to handle that news? If you believe this, not just as a mental idea, but if this grabs your heart, change how you can handle that. 
Because really the question is not if you're going to die, right? You know, as they say, I'm not a prophet. I work for a nonprofit, but you're going to die, right? Question's not if you're going to die. Question's how. And I don't mean how as in like a car wreck or cancer or, I mean, how is your heart and mind going to be when you die? I think one of the most important questions you can ask is, who do I want to be as I die? How do I, how do I want to be for my family, for my God, as I die? This truth, I mean, what's more practical than that, right? Everybody dies. This truth can give you something amazing for that. So let's walk through it. Paul says, I know it's hard to believe, but hold on. I want to do three things for you. Number one, rethink your assumptions. Rethink your assumptions. There's underlying beliefs we have kind of mess with us. Let's look at those a little bit. Rethink your assumptions. Number two, reconsider what you see in nature, what you see all around you all the time. Look at that again. Number three, remember one more time, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Rethink your assumptions. Reconsider what you see in nature. Remember Jesus. Number one, your assumptions. So I'm in uh, verse 35, chapter 15. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And what is Paul's next line? Verse 36. <laughs> you foolish person. That's, come on, just because I find something hard to believe, that's not nice. Okay, now what do you think? Is Paul just uh, insulting them? Or is there a little more to it than this? Well, what are we saying, though? Okay, listen. What's been God's promise all through this chapter? It's not a new idea. What's going to happen to you when you die if you're in Christ? Rise from the dead, okay? Rise from the dead. By the way, what do these people already believe? They already believe the gospel. They already believe Jesus rose from the dead. And he says, oh, you guys are being fools. Why are they being fools? Well, the word fool in the Bible means a lot more than just calling somebody an idiot offhand. There's, there's kind of a theology to this. Look at Psalm 14.1. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, what's he say in his heart? There is no God. You know what's amazing? He's not talking about atheists. Because back in this day, the reason really wasn't such a thing as atheists. It's somebody who has a mental knowledge of God. Yeah, sure, I believe in a God. But doesn't take that knowledge seriously at all. He's compartmentalized God way over here. Yeah, there's a God, sure, but he doesn't see, he doesn't hear, he doesn't do anything, doesn't act on it. He's not actually a serious part of my life. God's distant, far away. We're kind of, it's kind of deism. He's way out there, I'm over here. And man, if you think God's far away, doesn't hear, doesn't act, isn't involved, what are you? You're a fool. <laughs> we need to remember, you ever heard this line, we see the world not as it is, but as we are? We see the world not as it is, but as we are. I uh, reread a book a couple weeks ago. Reread a book. The first time I read the book, I thought it was stupid. <laughs> Evidently, the book has massively changed over the last several years. Because <laughs> this time I read it, and it was amazing. Well, of course, the book didn't change. I change. 
I saw new things. I saw new things in a different way. We see the world, sure, we see truth in it, but we don't always see it as it is. We, we see it as we are. We see it as we are. Because you find something hard to believe doesn't mean it's not rational or logical or true. We have assumptions, doubts, fears, past that go into how we see things. Paul's saying, you're being fools. You're not taking God seriously. We could go into the, the worldview of the Corinthian day. I'd rather go into the worldview of our day. What is it that keeps us from embracing, loving, believing, enjoying the holistic reign of Jesus over all of life, including our resurrection, so that we are just courageous? We've heard this word before. Um, you ever heard the word secularism? So theologians, philosophers are saying we live in a secular society. The word secular comes from the idea of just here and now, right now, is what matters. And so in a secular society, it's the idea that you lose the idea of a transcendent God. So those of you who are a little long in the tooth, wouldn't you say the country at least used to have more of a sense of there's a God over everything and the Bible is his word? And maybe you don't always trust that or live that out, but there's a respect for it. Hey, there's a God who's watching, who's over us. There's an authority out there. He's transcendent. In a secular day, we're like... <laughs> that's a joke. And what's the authority now? What's the reality now? It's the self. It's how you feel. It's what you want. It's what's right for you. We're secular. And so what that does is it, it separates how we view life. So now our thoughts about God, we're told, should be like the personal value factor. Haven't you heard this before? You, saw, you start talking about your faith, and they're like, well, I'm glad that's good for you. Have you heard that? If it feels good for you. So what are you supposed to do with the, the biggest questions of life, like who is God and what are we here for? Which is, that's for you. It's personal value, okay? And there's some subjectivism to it, right? There's some relativism, relativism to it. You kind of make it up as you go. What's the real truth you'd want to plant your feet on in this culture? Science, right? Measurable science. Do, do you feel that at all or am I just talking steam over you? Do you feel that? Real truth is science. If you can base it in science, well, that's real. Otherwise, it's your thoughts, your feelings about God. Your, see this dichotomy? Secularism. Well, there's some problems with that, as many scientists and philosophers have shown. Science can show us amazing things about how things work. I ask you, what can science, what can science show you about why things are here? What will science tell you about love? Oh, there's chemicals that go off in your head when you see a pretty woman. Really? That's love? That's all there? What will science tell you about justice? What will science tell you about meaning in life? I mean, you, you want to think about how species have evolved, right? Survival of the fittest is the way to go, isn't it? So what do the powerful do with the weak? We eat them. <laughs> so what should I do with the weak in my life? Um, science, the only place to find actually the most important questions of life, love, right and wrong, truth, meaning, purpose, will be from God himself. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Most of you aren't secularists. But look at this, look at this quote from Tim Keller. Look at this quote from Tim Keller. 
Keller writes, in a secular age, even religious people tend to choose lovers and spouses, careers and friendships, financial options with no higher goal than their own present time personal happiness. That's what we call secularism in religious people. I'm going to read that again. In a secular age, even religious people tend to choose their lovers, spouses, careers, and friendships, and financial options with no higher goal than their own present time personal happiness. Sacrificing personal peace and affluence for transcendent causes becomes rare, even for people who say they believe in absolute values and eternity. Even if you are not a secular person, the secular age can thin out faith until it is seen as simply one more choice in life, along with job, recreation, hobbies, polities, rather than as the comprehensive framework that determines all life choices. Wow. So you could be a Christian and believe some stuff, but in a secular age, you could put this over here and this over here and this over here, and you could buy into the thing of, hey, you gotta live for now. You gotta live for now. This is the life that matters. So your money goes into now, your relationships into now, 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 and not for Jesus Christ and no view for the future. That's why Paul said this earlier. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 34. What did he say to him? Wake up from your drunken stupor. If you think this life is all there is and all your anxieties and all your worries and all your views of things are from here and right now, it's like you're drunk. You're not seeing straight. Remember, you see things as you are, not as they are. So if we woke up, I mean, the first thing, check your assumptions. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Are you taking the reality of God and his goodness, and his power, and his promises seriously for what it means for this life. Take his power seriously. Take his goodness seriously. And if you do that, you'll see your resurrection is what he's been after the whole time. You're going to rise. Number two, reconsider nature. Look at verse 37. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed it's its own body. So what did Paul compare this body we're in right now to? A seed. That's interesting, right? Imagine you're uh, eating lunch with a friend, and uh, you made homemade bread. Do any of you ever make homemade bread anymore? We need to make more at my house. You ever had that loaf that's just out and the, the edge is kind of crispy, right? But the inside has to be moist, you know? And then right when it's out of the oven, it's just got its own, like, warmth. And so then you put some of that butter on there. That's how I like it, okay? And now some of you are like, I have to go, right? I have to go get some bread. Maybe some honey if you're going to go crazy. And you're, you're talking, you're, you're sharing the gospel with your neighbor, which we're all doing, Right? And inviting your neighbors to church is what we're all doing, right? And you're eating that bread together, and your neighbor's discussing says, I just don't understand how you could say something dies, and it's transformed and comes back up similar but better. 
as they eat bread made of wheat, which came from seeds, which had to die, but then were transformed into something similar, but better. Yeah, that can't be true. It's ridiculous. Wow. God does it all the time. And no one else can do it. As one scholar said, not even Monsanto can replicate that. It's miraculous. It's amazing. It's outside of our hands. We can mess with it, but we can't originate it. Goes into the ground, it dies, it comes back to life. Wow. Every year, now Southern Californians won't understand this, but evidently in other places in this country, they have these things called seasons. Say it with me, seasons. See, I know, I know. You'll have to take it on faith. Seasons. Summer. By the way, every story works like this. So every story has seasons. Summer, good times. But what happens very soon in the story? Fall, the leaves die, something bad happens. What's after fall? Winter, it's ugly. There's no life here, it can't happen. But what magnificently, amazingly, miraculously seems to come every time? Spring, and what was dead and icy and cold and brown and gray, all of a sudden, is green with life. God wrote the seasons to show you his story. What's summer in the Bible? The Garden of Eden. Everything's great. What happens very soon? Chapter 3. Fall. Long fall. Where's the icy cold winter? It's the cross. And then in God's tension and drama, get a long, slow, the ice is melting. The ice is melted in you, it's melted in me. We, we know Jesus, it's melting all over the world. It's melting, but one day, what's gonna happen? Spring. That's when Jesus comes back and these seeds that were planted in the earth, and whether you get buried in a big box or you get burn up and thrown into a stream or, heck, eaten by lions and pooed out somewhere. <laughs> or if you were a Christian, lit up by Nero's torch and all that's left from you is gray ash. It doesn't matter. It goes back into the ground. It's planted. And when Jesus comes back, it'll rise. And as verse 37 says, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. So it's going to be similar, but different and even better. We're going to see that in just a few minutes. You see, don't you see resurrection in the very patterns of nature? Isn't God doing this all the time? All the time. Not only that, look at the varieties of nature. You see varieties in verses 38 to 41. Uh, what, what varieties you got? I got uh, humans, animals, birds, fish. Then he's talking about the things in the heavens. You got stars, uh, the sun, the moon. Each one, you have a body fit for its purpose and environment. 
The book of Genesis works like this. Hey, I'm going to make land, and I'm going to fill it with animals. I'm going to make water and fill it with fish. And best of all, I'm going to make people. I'm going to make the, the skies and fill them with stars and a sun and a moon. And it is, it, Are any of you into uh, documentaries like me? You ever watch those sometimes? And you just get your mind blown? Whether it's like the complexity of the cell or the fine-tuning of gravity or the star or the octopus who's intelligent and can change his colors. And you just... The more you look at creation, the more you're just, wah, how can you not just be an atheist worship when they go to national parks? And they even write about it. I felt spiritual because I saw something. The variety of creation leaves us in awe. It's beautiful. There's, there's, each one is for their purpose and for their environment. Look at verse 42. So it is. With the resurrection of the dead. So if God makes bodies, glories, fit for their purpose and environment, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What's going to come? What's God, what's God going to do with this creation? We read it in prayer this morning from First Peter or Second Peter. Take some match to it. We need a uh, we need a do over, a remodel. Extreme home makeover, universe version, right? And we'll all be like the people, you know how they used to do that behind the bus, right? We'll all be the people behind the bus, you know? And the, what, don't they, move that, move that bus, okay? And the, and the bus drives away, and they see the new house, and what are they all doing? You know, they're, they're acting fools, they're jumping up and down, oh, everything's perfect, you know? Imagine. Listen, you think, oh, that's, it's hard to believe. But listen, do you believe there's a God? It's harder to believe there isn't one, really. Do you believe God made this with the word of his power? There it is. It's, it's all around you all the time. And isn't he out to, isn't the whole story about how he's out to renew his creation? He's not going to leave it like this. He's going to change it. Yeah. There's, which means there's going to be a new environment for his people to live in. The new heavens and the new earth where God's glory is just drenched all over it. Where he's there, right there. This body I have right now would not belong in that environment. I could not face his holiness. I could, I could not handle that place. It'd be like a sea slug trying to climb Mount Everest. Dead, you know? But God makes bodies for the purpose and fit of their environment. So it is with the resurrection. What, he's gonna, what is he going to make for you if he's going to make this new place? What is he always doing? He's filling the perfect place with the bodies fit for their purpose and environment. So what's he going to give you? For this new place, a new body, a new body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. You want to hear about this body you're going to get? It's not just extreme uh, universe remodel. It's extreme body remodel. So what is sown, follow me, verse 42. What is sown is what? Perishable. What's perishable mean? Breaks down, man. 
you kids, you're like, what are you talking about? I'm getting older, I'm getting stronger, I'm getting faster. I don't even want to break this to you. I don't want to tell you. But that, you hit a ceiling at some point. It's never quite as, it's never quite as high of a ceiling as you'd hoped. And then, man, you, there's a reason we call it, what, over the hill. And you start coming down that, and you're like, what's going on? It used to be all smooth and creamy and trimish and strong and recovered fast. And oh my gosh, right? It's, it's breaking down. Doesn't look like it used to look, doesn't work like it used to work. And I'm told by some of my friends, it only gets worse. It only gets worse. Y'all make it look good, but it's perishable. Oh, and the heartache to that. It hurts to be in a perishable body. You know this, right? You can't do things you used to do. It hurts. It hurts. It's a loss. It's a grief. You can't relate to people the way you used to relate. It's awful. You can't contribute the way you used to contribute because you're perishable. What are you going to get? Imperishable. You know, I am so into seeing every human longing all over culture and, and looking at how it's fulfilled in Christ. We are so into comic book heroes in our culture. Tell me we're not. We are in love with this. And what is it about these people? They're strong. And they stay strong. What is this longing? What is this weird thing? Because that's pretend, right? What is this thing we want so bad? You are going to be raised with an imperishable body. And this is not just fable. You're going to be raised with an imperishable body that won't break down. Does that sound all right? It was sown in dishonor. It was raised in glory. There is a dishonor to, uh, babies are cute, there's a dishonor to be having to be treated like a baby when you're older. Do you feel it? I don't want you to have to help me walk. I don't want you to have to feed me. It happens to each of us, right? It happens. It happens in different varieties, different timings, different ways. It happens. And we feel this dishonor. What is it raised in? Glory. Glory means weight, just value, beauty. Instead of this shame, dishonor feeling, it's just, what can you say? Gloriousness, awesomeness. Jesus actually said the righteous will shine like the sun. He actually said that. Glorious. Uh, it was sown in weakness. You know what that is. Fragile, limited, can't do everything you wanted to do, everything you hoped to do. How many of you, I, I'm, I have flaws that are never going away. I can doctor them a little bit, put some makeup on it. We have, we have weakness. We're fragile. We're limited. What are we going to be raised in? Power. Power to live like you wanted to live. You'll, we will. So, this is so beautiful. Finally, Paul says, 
It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. And here we have to be careful because I'm like, you know, what's your concern here? Raise a spiritual body? What's that feel like to you? Like a ghost. I was all into this until you said spiritual body. Now all my platonic fears are coming back. Remember the far side of the guy sitting on a cloud in his white bathrobe in heaven being like, I should have brought a magazine, you know, because he doesn't have a real body. He's not in a real place. Those are all kind of urban superstitions about heaven. Won't be like that. Move that out of your brain. It's not real. That's not what Paul means at all. He's talking about the absolute opposite of spiritual equals ghost. Not it at all. For him, natural means this corrupted age where you're weak and you die. And spiritual means of the Holy Spirit. What God is doing. It means, remember Jesus' new body? It's like that. That's what it means. That's what it means. And then Paul, how confident do you think Paul is? Verse 44. Look at this statement in verse 44, last sentence. If there is a natural body, what else is there? There is a spiritual body. If you are here in this body, if there is a God and he made everything, he did. If he's going to redeem his creation, he is. If Jesus rose from the dead, he did. If God is going to finish what he started, he will. If you're going to have what Jesus is giving you, there's going to be a new environment. You're going to have a new body. It's a promise. So does that, does that help you taste the reality of your resurrection? That's what Paul's trying to do. You're going to rise. Rethink your assumptions. God is bigger and stronger than you think. Don't be the fool and be like, well, God over here, but this. No, he's over everything. Rethink, reconsider the patterns and varieties of nature. God is renewing and recreating all the time. Will again. Finally, remember Jesus Look at verse 35, 45. Thus it is written, the first, Adam, first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Have you noticed Paul loves to do this? He loves to compare Adam with Christ. Uh, the, the Bible sees what happens to us in these terms of representatives. So you get a phrase like this, as an Adam all die. What does that mean? Well, verse 45. Paul writes, the first man... Adam became a living being. He's, he's quoting from an Old Testament text. You know what it is? The Genesis, when God creates Adam. There he is, made of flesh and spirit. God breathed life into him. And then, and then he assumes you know the story. What happened to Adam? Well, there's the first fool. I can be God. There's the first secularist. I'll determine, what, I'll determine what's right for me with no transcendent authority. And what did it bring all of us? Death. But there's a comparison. There's a second man. There's a second Adam. It says in verse 47, the second man is from heaven. What was Jesus always saying about himself, especially in the Gospel of John? I have come. I was sent. That makes me laugh, because if you and I talk like that, people would be like, you have a problem how you view yourself. I was sent from heaven to you. And you'd be like, bring it down. <laughs> Jesus talks like that because he, he was actually sent. He was, he's eternal. He already was. And he came and took on flesh. There's some significance here, too, of uh, the virgin birth. 
He did not have the same connection with Adam. God implanted him there in that womb miraculously. He escaped something the rest of us carry. Second man's different. And you think of Adam, he disobeyed. What did Jesus do? He obeyed. Theologians talk about Jesus' active obedience. So how did he live when he was on the earth? This is huge, right? Why are you considered right with God? Why, are you, why is it considered like you've done everything right before God? Because Jesus did everything right before God. I saw a horrid statistic about evangelical teens, and way too many of them thought Jesus sinned just like everybody else. Jesus sinned just like, so let's get this straight. Did Jesus sin at all, ever once? No. If he did, he could not save you. He did not sin. That's why his righteousness can make you righteous, because when God gives you his perfection, it's real perfection. It's Jesus' active obedience, as if you did it right, just like he did it right. That's a good resume. How have you lived? I got some disappointments. But in God's eyes, 100%. Jesus' obedience is mine. Okay? Then there's Jesus' passive obedience. Where's that? On the cross, when he's taking humiliation, shame, condemnation, when Jesus is being treated like you and me deserve. Passive obedience. Your will be done, Father, right? Then there's his resurrection. The second Adam. Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Adam brought death, Jesus brings life. In Adam, you die. In Christ, you are alive. Look at verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. You got anything in common with Adam? He's the man of dust. We're of the dust. You had an Adam-like heart? I'm going to rebel against you, God. I'm going to do my own thing. Yep. That's why you have an Adam-like body. What's your body going to do? Die. But Jesus has come. As is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. Are you of heaven? Are you of heaven? How do you know? You trust Jesus. That's how you know. You trust him. You trust what he's done to make you right. You trust in his life, his death, his resurrection. If you trust that, you had an Adam-like heart, but something's changed. Jesus is changing your heart. And you had an Adam-like heart, Adam-like body. Jesus is changing your heart. Guess what else Jesus is going to change? Your body. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, this body dying, breaking, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. You will have a body just like the new one Jesus got. Amen? So don't be a fool and have the sense that God's way out there and this life is all there is because that's what everything in this culture is trying to bleed into you. What does Paul want you to have a big grip on? You're going to rise. I want you to see something. Do you see how the biological and moral world are united in this? This is really amazing. Secularism wants you to separate these two. Your values, religion up to you on this side. Real truth, science on this side. Why is this world corrupted? 
because of a moral failure in Adam. Why will this world be remade? Because of moral success in Jesus. Everything in life is about God, for God, to God. So I want to go back to two quotes as we end here. Our warning from Keller. See this again. Even if you are not a secular person, the secular age can thin out faith until it is seen as simply one more choice in life, along with job, recreation, hobbies, and polities, rather than as the comprehensive framework that determines all life choices. Which person are you? Is your trust in Jesus have you to where his lordship is the comprehensive framework for everything, every relationship, every word, every motive, your life, your death, your money, your marriage, everything. There's a guy named Abraham Kuyper. He's my favorite CRC dude. Have you heard of him? He was a journalist. He actually became prime minister of the Netherlands. He's also a theologian, and this is his famous quote. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine, mine. That's true of your dead body. Mine, he'll remake it. And that's true of everything else in life. So let's not be fools Let's embrace the reality that Jesus gives us new life and let that truth dominate and transform our entire lives. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we struggle to believe. As we sang earlier, we believe, but help our unbelief. Give us excitement and courage in the reality that you, Lord Jesus, rose from the dead And that you will not be content with anything less than us rising from the dead as well. And as we believe that and enjoy that and think upon it, let let it give us courage and passion to trust you as our Savior and uh, to devote our entire lives to you now, no matter what you give us. Do this in us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.